Hey, Cornwall Church, thanks for joining us today as we get together on this monumental weekend. You know, if you think about it, this weekend's pretty amazing because on Friday, Friday, Juneteenth, Saturday, the summer solstice, first day of summer, and Sunday, Father's Day. I mean, all of these back to back to back. So for all you fathers out there, we want to say happy Father's Day. So grateful for you. Way to go, dad. Uh, take a nap, whatever you want to do and celebrate being a dad. Uh, as far as the summer solstice, as you're aware, first day of summer, longest day of the year. I thought to commemorate that, I would give the longest sermon of the year, but I'm not going to. I could, but I'm not going to. And for Juneteenth, what an incredible day when the final, the final emancipation of the slaves happened. Finally, one more step in our country's history, very dark history, one more step towards the equal value worth of every single life, no matter what the skin color. You know, along that line, as a church, we took another step last weekend. It may have been a small step, but it was a step. And if you were not able to join us last weekend, can I just encourage you to go online and watch or listen to last weekend? And again, I just want to thank Vincent and Rushunda for joining me and having a conversation about race. And it's been amazing to hear the conversations that have come out of that as parents talk with their children about this, as individuals, friends, and small groups have discussed this. The amount of awareness and, and, and greater understanding and a commitment to learn more. Uh, I'm excited about this being another step for us in this journey. And I will say this, for some of you who were not as enthusiastic about last weekend, as I promised, I read every one of your emails, every one of your letters, I heard your perspective, I heard your concerns. I even heard your pain. And this is my prayer, is that we will all join together and continue in this journey of fulfilling the law of Christ, which is the law of love. That we as individual followers after Christ and we collectively as the body of Christ will be instruments to bring about hope and justice and peace and reconciliation and love to this world. That we would bring, as Jesus prayed, the kingdom as it is in heaven here on earth. And so I'm praying that we will continue on to be the kingdom bringers, all for the glory of the one who gave his entire life so that you and I could have a right relationship with our heavenly father, our creator. Amen? All right, I'm assuming that you said amen. Hey, today I'm excited as we start our summer series on Moses. We're gonna spend the next 12 weeks clear up uh, through Labor Day weekend in September studying Moses. And maybe by that time we might have the opportunity to possibly meet together. We don't know. Uh, but Belize, our brothers and sisters in Belize, this weekend they're meeting together uh, for the first time again. So I'm glad your country is allowing that. Continue to be safe. Studying the life of Moses, just the mention of the name Moses, no doubt brings about all kinds of thoughts stories, memories, even images, pictures in your mind. Maybe one of the most vivid pictures for many of us is this picture from Cecil B. DeMille's classic epic movie from 1956, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. And as I was thinking about this picture, because for many of us, when we think Moses, this is what we think. I wonder, and some of you can answer me on this, what did people before 1956, what image came to their mind of Moses? Because it wasn't this one, but for all of us since then, this is probably the picture we have in mind when we think Moses. Or how about in 1998, that classic Prince of Egypt, maybe for some of you, this is the image that you were raised with. Or who could ever forget in 2007, the Veggie Tales, where Mo and the Big Exit, where Moses is actually 
a cucumber. Now, whether, whatever your image is, the truth is that Moses is this bigger than life character. In the Old Testament, there's some incredible people. I mean, people like, like Abraham, people like Esther, people like David, people like Elijah. But Moses, he stands head and shoulders above all of them. I mean, Moses is mentioned throughout scripture over 700 times, and there are more miracles attributed to Moses than anyone else in scripture save Jesus. In addition to all of that, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. God spoke to Moses. God wrote those books through Moses. The law of Moses, the song of Moses, the, the prayer of Moses, the blessing of Moses, Amazing stuff. And in addition to that, Jesus and Paul both quote Moses. I don't know if anyone has ever quoted you. I think I've probably been misquoted more than I've been quoted in my life. Not a lot of people tweet out things I say because it's not very profound. I think, as best as I know, anything that I've ever said has only been recorded in one book, and my name wasn't even included. It was a conversation I had with the author. And it wasn't even his best-selling book. In fact, it's kind of low on the shelf. And so I'm not quoted a lot. To have your words quoted by Jesus and Paul, that's pretty amazing. So you have this man, Moses. And what's interesting is that at the end of the Pentateuch, at the end of Deuteronomy, there's like this statement, and most people believe it's a postscript. Like probably Joshua added it on after Moses died. And it says this about Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. I mean, wow. Here they're saying there, there hasn't been another prophet like him. No one has been as powerful. You think about the miracles that he did. You think about when, he's, when he parted the Red Sea. You think about what he did when his staff became a snake and the plagues and water out of the rock and all of these things. And in addition to that, that God knew him face to face. You would think that that would be pretty heady stuff for Moses to recognize that he is being that close to God and used by God. And yet there's a parenthetical footnote that we find in the book of Numbers. And I think it's really important that we see it as a parenthetical footnote because I believe this one was inserted later as well as a postscript as well. Because in Numbers, we read this about Moses. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. The reason it's in parentheses, the reason I believe this is a postscript is because if Moses wrote the Pentateuch, and this is part of that, when you write that kind of a statement about yourself, it's self-refuting. The moment you say, I'm the humblest person I know, you have just negated what you said. But this is what is said about Moses, that here is this powerful man of God, talks with God face to face, and yet he is the most humble man on the face of the planet. No wonder God worked through him. It says, the Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace, grace to the humble. So here's our man the giver of the law, the one who recorded the Ten Commandments, chiseled them in stone himself, the one who wrote the Psalm 90. And, and we may, on the last week of the series, depending on how it goes, we may spend the entire week in Psalm 90, the psalm that Moses wrote. 
And the blessing, the blessing that some of you didn't even know it was from Moses. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. That was from Moses. And he was telling Aaron, this is how you're to bless the people. And the song of Moses. You know, I thought about songs. Songs have a, songs have a shelf life. And sometimes those shelf lives are short, sometimes they're longer. Uh, my daughter uh, came up from Seattle for Father's Day this week, and we went for a ride on my motorcycle, and I said, you get to choose the playlist that we listen to. And I think she did this more for me than anything. She said, okay. She chose a playlist on Spotify called 70s Road Trip. And so we're riding our motorcycle, we're singing these songs, and I'm thinking, my daughter, who's 30 years younger than me, she's singing Benny and the Jets right along with me. Billy Joel's Piano Man comes on, and we're singing it together. I mean, it's amazing. It spans two generations. The, the shelf life of a song. How about the shelf life of worship songs? For some of you who've been a part of the church for decades. I mean, you think about if you were around the evangelical church in the 80s, Jack Hayford's Majesty, that song, Worship is Majesty. You know, that, that was amazing. Or in the 90s, Darlene Check wrote, uh, Shout to the Lord. That was like the anthem of a decade. Even just a few years ago, oceans, like can't get enough of oceans. And it seems like songs, worship songs, have this shorter and shorter shelf life. But Moses writes this song, and it's amazing. I mean, it's like he writes the songs that make the whole world sing. Okay, honestly, when's the last time you heard a Barry Manilow uh, lyric in church? All right, he writes this song. 15, 1600 years later, John the Revelator has this vision of heaven. In heaven, he sees the angels, and this is what he writes about these angels. They, they held harps given them by God, and they sang the song of Moses. You talk about a shelf life, heaven is singing the songs that Moses wrote. Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Here he is writing these songs that even the angels sing about. Now, this, this man is amazing. And I'll say, as I say all the time, we do not have the time in these 12 weeks to cover exhaustively his life. In fact, we're not even going to necessarily go chronological all the way through. We're going to look at some lessons, and there is so much more that we're going to skip over than we're actually going to hit on. So if some of you are saying, oh, I want us to go a little bit deeper with this. I want, to, I want to hear more of it. I want to recommend some things. For those of you who say, you know what, I'm not satisfied with just the weekend service. I want to recommend some books if you want to read more, if you want to hear more. Uh, three books in particular. Uh, the first one is the... <laughs> The Bible. It's a, it's a really, really good book. And, uh, and it has the story of Moses in there. You can read that on your own. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The second book that I would recommend is this one by, by Swindoll. It's called um, the, um, A Man of Selfless Dedication, Moses. And it's part of his Great Lives of the Bible series. A great book uh, with a lot of more detail than we're going to be able to cover. And another one, uh, if you're interested, is James Montgomery Boyce, The Life of Moses. Now, the Swindoll book is almost 400 pages long. The, um, the Boyce book is over 400 pages long. A lot of information. This one covers Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you want to go a little bit farther, a little bit deeper with that, you can. If you say, I don't want to do that. I just want to hear the story. Well, then tune in every week. But I might also admit, uh, mention, if you want to see a condensed version of Moses' life, Read Acts chapter 7. 
And there Stephen kind of gives this history and he does this Cliff's Notes version. He condenses it down in less than a chapter in the Bible. If you want an even shorter version, read Hebrews chapter 11. There's a section in there that talks about Moses and his life. But we're going to be digging into this and looking at his life over the course of the next 12 weeks. Now today, at the very first week of this series, today I want to say I'm going to, I'm going to be doing a lot of foundational work. I'm going to give a lot of historical context, some geographical context, some biblical context, some backstory, a lot of information. We will get eventually to Exodus chapter 2 if you want to turn in your Bible. We're going to get there eventually. But I want to give you a lot of this background, a lot of the backstory that leads up to the life of Moses. And in order to do that, we need to back all the way up, probably six or 700 years before Moses is born, to a man named Abraham. No doubt you've uh, probably heard of Abraham. Abraham is this man that God chooses. Abraham is a man of faith. God chooses him, and God makes a covenant with him, and God says to him, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a great nation. Your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky, and because I bless you, all nations will be blessed. We know the answer to that is that through the bloodline of Abraham would come the Messiah that would bring life to every single person. So Abraham, here's this covenant that God makes with him. Before he ever even has a child, God says, you are going to have incredible amount of descendants. I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a great nation. While God is making this covenant with him, hundreds of years before Moses is born, six, seven hundred years earlier, God makes this statement to Abraham. It says this, then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. See, this isn't just some random historical event. This is the fulfillment of a prophecy. It's the fulfillment of the prophecy that God had made to Abraham. It's this fulfillment that, um, that he would bring them out of this country. They would be in, in slavery for 400 years. So with that, let me give you a little bit of biblical context, all right? And I'm going to go through this quickly because we've done this before, all right? So we'll, we'll look over here. We've got the flip chart today, so this is going to be a lot of fun for us. So we, we start here with, with Abraham. We just talked about him. And, and many of you know he has a wife named Sarah. They're said that they're going to have um, a family. Now, Abraham and Sarah actually go to Egypt one time. And when they're in Egypt, they get this handmaiden, this servant, to help out Sarah, kind of a little, you know, assistant for Sarah. Well, Sarah is not able to have children, and so one day she decides this handmaiden, her name is Hagar, maybe Hagar should have a son. And so Abraham has a child with Hagar, and his name is Ishmael, all right? Now, little, little context on this. For those of you who are aware of, of the, the Islam faith, they would say that Ishmael was the son of the covenant. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all point back to Abraham as the patriarch. All right. He's the firstborn son to Abraham. But then God fulfills his promise, and Sarah, in her old age, and Abraham in his older than old age, they have a son, and this is the son of the covenant. This is Isaac. Now, real quick, Isaac, he has a wife, Rebecca, and she has twins, the oldest son is a man named Esau, 
And, and I love this story about Esau because it says when he's born, he's got hair all over him and he's like covered red. And, and it's like this little red Chewbacca kind of uh, Grinch that sold Christmas. Here comes this little Esau and his brother, Jacob. And Jacob, is a, he's a little deceiver. Jacob is a deceiver. And one day he wrestles with God and God changes his name. Jacob's name becomes Israel. And so, so he becomes Israel. Jacob has 12 sons and the second to last son is Joseph. Some of you may remember Joseph. Joseph's older brothers, the other 10, are very jealous of him. And so they sell him. And when he's sold, he's sold into Egypt. And this is roughly like uh, somewhere in the 19 to 1800 BC, okay? So that's where we get Joseph. Joseph ends up in Egypt. He's sold into Egypt. Now, you may be familiar with the story of that. There's a famine up in Canaan. So Jacob sends his other sons to hear about this food in Egypt. They go down to get some. Long story short, uh, Joseph says, why don't you guys all move down here? Why don't you come down? That'd be great. Bring my father, bring my little brother. You guys come with your families and all those herds. So they come down and, and Joseph, while he's like number two in the, in the country, he can't just allow them to come in. They have to go before Pharaoh. And he gives them some very specific instructions when they go before Pharaoh. Jacob, their father, had been a shepherd. They had been shepherds. And so when they come down, he says, this is what's going to happen. He says, when Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock. Okay, hold on to this because I'm going to give you a little quiz. He says, I know you're shepherds. You've always been shepherds. Dad was a shepherd. Don't use that term. Tell them you tend livestock from our boyhood, just as our fathers did. Then you'll be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen. Hold on to that one too. So he says, here's what I need you to do. I'm just telling you, this is what's going to happen. You're going to go in front of Pharaoh. He's going to say, what do you do? I don't want you to say you're shepherds. I want you to say you tend livestock. Why? Here's why. For all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. He says, I'm just telling you, they look down on shepherds. Shepherds are outcasts. They're, they're low caste system. Don't tell them you're a shepherd. So got it. Got it? What are you going to not tell them? They're not going to tell them we're a shepherd. What are you going to tell them? We tend the livestock. Good, good. So Joseph picks five of his brothers to go represent the clan. Which five? I don't know. I could speculate for different reasons. But he picks five of these guys to go and represent. So they go in and just like clockwork. Look at this. It says this. Pharaoh asks the brothers, what is your occupation? They've been told this is the question. This is the only question. And they've been told what not to say, and they've been told what to say. Go ahead and discuss this amongst yourselves. What are they supposed to say? Tending livestock. What are they not supposed to say? Shepherds. They come before Pharaoh. He says, what are your occupations? And they said, your servants are shepherds. Oh, are you kidding me? Seriously, you've got one thing you've got to remember, and you get it wrong. They replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. I, I, I can imagine Joseph back there going, oh. They are so stupid. Why? Well, I told them, don't say that. And then they go even further. They say this. They also said to him, we have come to live here a while. Hold on to that one. When someone says they're coming to your house to live for a while, it'd be nice to know what that means. That can be very subjective. 
You know, here we are, we're gonna come, we're gonna live for a while. Is that a long weekend? Is that 10 days? Is that the summer? Is it more than that? Is this like Cousin Eddie with his motor home and he's moving in for good? They said, we're, we're going to come and we're going to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan. Kind of implying as soon as the, sam- the famine is not severe in Canaan, we'll go back. And your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. Well, that kind of gets us to the end of Genesis. And then in Exodus chapter 1, verse 5, we read this. The descendants of Jacob, Israel, numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. All right, just real quick. In Genesis, it says there were 66 of them. In Exodus, it says there were 70 of them. In um, Acts, it says there were 75. And people say it's because they were not counting Joseph and his kids, or it was counting, it doesn't matter. They're a clan, they're a nomadic tribe of about 70 to 75 people. And they're herds, and they come in, and they settle in the land or the region of Goshen. Now, back to the map. All right, the map. Let's get some, some geographical context. Here is the famous Rand McNally Marvel map of the, uh, the Near East. So you have here Israel and Egypt. You have the Mediterranean Sea, the Dead Sea, the Red Sea. The Med, the Dead, and the Red. Those are our major bodies of water. Just for context, Jerusalem is up here. The land of Canaan is right up here. This is the Sinai Peninsula, the Nile River, and there's absolutely, and I'm getting way ahead of myself, two weeks ahead of myself actually, there is no way to overstate how important the Nile River is, was and is even to this day to Egypt. All right, so you have the Nile River. This would have been where the pyramids are. This is roughly where where Cairo is today. Now, this will come in, in in a few weeks. Mount Sinai is believed to be right down here in the Sinai Peninsula. And the Midian wilderness, which we'll talk about next week, the Midian wilderness is over here. Up here is called the, the Delta of the Nile. It's where the Nile River, kind of like uh, the Mississippi, where it has this delta where it splits off. And this whole region up here is called the, the region of Goshen. Two more little things. There's these two cities that we'll, we'll come back to in a minute. Ramses, you've heard that name probably related with, with uh, Egypt. Ramses and Pithon. Okay, so there are these two cities. So here is where they're saying, okay, we want to settle in the land of Goshen, in this region. And he allows them to settle in. Uh, Goes on to say this. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. So now Joseph is dead. His father has already died. The brothers die. But no one leaves Goshen. They don't go back to Canaan. And, And why should they? Goshen is this beautiful land. It's, it's rich. It's fertile. There's always pastures. There's always water because of the Nile. It's, it's fantastic. They don't leave. They stay there, even though the, you know, the, the founders of the tribes have died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land, <coughs> excuse me, the land was filled with them. Not the entire land of, of, of Egypt, the land of Goshen was filled with them. So now that you've got all of these people and they're coming around to this, uh, this great land of Goshen. What's amazing is that, and we'll see in a minute, these people, these Hebrew people, are being oppressed and the greater the oppression on them, the greater their numbers flourish. And they continue to grow and they continue to multiply. 
And then something very significant happens in Exodus chapter one, verse eight. It says this. Then, this is a hinge now. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Now, let me give you some Egyptian context. In Egyptian history, there are different eras, and within different eras, there are different dynasties, and within different dynasties, there are different kings and or pharaohs. So there's this new era, there's this new, you know, this, this new season, this, this new dynasty, this new king, and he doesn't know the history. He doesn't know what Joseph did. He doesn't know how Joseph not only saved Egypt, but saved the whole area. Doesn't know that he was number two. He doesn't know any of that. And it goes on and it says, look, this new king says, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. They have grown so big. Some would say it was upwards of even close to 2 million people. So they had come in as, a, as a, a nomadic family clan of 70, 75 people. And over the years, hundreds of years, they've become 2 million people. And it's a frightening thing. It's threatening to this new king. Now, I do want to uh, go back to this, this Egyptian uh, history for some context on that. As I said, in Egypt, there were these different eras. There was early, early on, it was called the, the early dynastic period. And then there was the old kingdom, the middle kingdom, the new kingdom with intermediary periods between those, and then the late dynastic uh, period. Now, in the moments, they weren't thinking, oh, this, we must be in the middle kingdom. It, just, it was always just now. Looking back historically. And in that, there were different dynasties. I think there were 32 different dynasties. And a dynasty was when there would be a, a family bloodline and it handed down generation to generation. All right. Back to this. We're, we're, almost, we're almost done with flip chart. We're getting a lot of, lot, of, lot of information. You still with me? Hanging in there? Okay. So we got Egypt. And what we're looking at now is the new kingdom. Not the old kingdom. Not the middle kingdom. This is the new kingdom that lasted roughly 500 years between 1550 and 1077 BC. During this era of the new kingdom, there were a lot of dynasties. The first one was the 18th dynasty. Dynasty 18. And it lasted from 1550 to 1292. The vast majority of the new kingdom was with the 18th dynasty. During that time, one of the pharaohs or one of the kings was a man named Thutmose III. Thutmose III. Now, the third meant that there was a Thutmose I, Thutmose II, Thutmose III, and then there was also Thutmose IV as well as some other pharaohs, a part of that bloodline. That's what's going on here. Now, if we were playing the family feud game and the subject matter was things having to do with Egypt, survey says the top two responses, I think, would be pyramids and King Tut. I mean, that's what everyone knows about Egypt. If you were to say, tell me everything you know about Egypt, you're probably going to start with, well, there's some pyramids and King Tut was from there, right? Let me just kind of, again, put this in historical context. The Great Pyramids in Giza, and, and there's some, some give and take on these numbers. I'm just using round numbers. The Great Pyramids in Giza were completed around 2,500 before Christ. King Tutankhamun, who, by the way, was like 19 uh, when, when his reign ended, He's in the, roughly in the area of 1335 BC. It's during this season that you begin to see some of these other things we've talked about. All right, 
We, we talked about Joseph, right? We'll put Joseph there in many colors. Joseph, uh, as we already said, this, we'll, put, we'll put Joe down here. Joe was, we'll use eight, uh, 1850 BC. Again, that's kind of rough numbers. Now, you get to Moses, and we'll use Moses here. He kind of looks like he came off the Simpsons there. So, all right, so we'll go, go with Mo here. Moses is generally, and again, there's, there's some disagreement on this, but generally believed to be around 1450 BC. What that means, that's B.O., that's a different story, but that's what happens when you work in Egypt without deodorant. Moses comes around about a thousand years after the pyramids are completed. So those of you who have always believed that the Hebrew children built the pyramids, sorry to burst your bubble, it's simply not true. He also comes around about 100 years before King Tut is in power. So that kind of gives you the context of all that. Now with that, we were going to take a break right here, and Pastor Kip wanted to sing Walk Like an Egyptian, um, and I said, uh, Ayo, no way, oh, we're just not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to sing King Tut by Steve Martin. When I die, don't think I'm a nut. Don't want no fancy funeral, just one like old King Tut. King Tut, funky Tut. How'd you get so funky? Born in Arizona, moved to Babylonia, got a condo made of stona. Okay, but we're not going to sing any of those songs. Here's the, listen, I'm preaching in an empty room. I have to entertain myself somehow. All right, so here's the, the historical context of what's going on and when Moses comes about. As we've seen now, there's a new king and he's afraid of all of these people, of these Hebrew children. It goes on and says this. Come, we must deal shrewdly, which is a nice way of saying harshly. We must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. He says, here's a problem. These foreigners have become so many that if we get attacked from from some other nation, they're going to be insurgents. They're going to join with this marauding force, and they're going to turn against us. Not only will we be defeated, but if they leave the country, and he's very aware of this, our whole economy collapses. Their economy was built on them. And so he's treating them harshly. goes on. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced laborers. And they built, remember our map, they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So he uses the Hebrew people now as his slaves to build these two cities that we saw. They're in the, in the uh, Nile Delta. They're building these cities as store cities so that the Pharaoh can store up grain and, and corn and what have you uh, for those things. So they, become, they begin to, to treat them uh, quite harshly. And some of the things that they had them do, these Hebrew slaves now, had them do was to build bricks, make bricks. It goes on to say this. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. We'll see this later and later when they're asked to not only make bricks, but to make it without straw, we'll get to that, and to, to increase even their, their quantity of how many, it just, they, were, they were harsh, horrible deplorable the way that they were treated and what was required of them. Now, at this point, some of you might be saying, yeah, Bob, I watched the movie. Or, yeah, I, I, I've read the books. Or, I, I remember it from the flannel board when I was in, in Sunday school. Is this really true? Well, that's a whole other conversation of if, if we get to pick and choose what we believe is true in the Bible. But what I find 
really, really fascinating is that there was a man, his name was Reckmeyer the, the um, vizier. Reckmeyer the vizier. He was not a pharaoh. However, he was a noble official during the 18th dynasty. And when archaeologists found Reckmeyer's tomb, they found a mural on the wall, which is not unusual, but they found on this mural on the wall in his tomb this picture, pictures of slaves making bricks. Now, interesting to me, this corresponds with the very time when the Bible says the Hebrew children were being oppressed and forced to make bricks. Absolute confirmation? You decide. I just think it's really kind of interesting. So the Hebrews increase in numbers. And this Pharaoh is so upset about this. He has an idea. We've, we've got it. You know, the hard work has just caused him to thrive and to flourish even more. So he calls in two women that are very, very important in our story. Their names are Shifra and Pua. Say Shifra and Pua. Shifra and Pua are midwives, and their number one only job is to help deliver these, these Hebrew children when they're being born. So Pharaoh brings in Shifra and Pua and says, this is what I want you to do. Whenever a little Hebrew baby is born and it's a boy, I want you to kill him. If you know that this baby is going to be a boy, abort the baby. Even if it's partially born, partial born abortion is fine. Even if it's fully born, full born abortion is fine. Kill these baby boys. Now, if you think about this, and if you're familiar with ancient history, infanticide was not a new thing, and it wasn't necessarily uncommon, but usually they would kill the baby girls because a boy could be used for slavery. A boy could have more, more value and more worth. This time, he says, I want you to kill all the baby boys because if we do that long enough, we create a genocide. There's no more Hebrew men. The women are ours, and they will not be reproducing as Hebrews. So he has them kill them. Now, Shifra and Pua, these women are amazing. In fact, the scripture says this, the midwives, Shifra and Pua, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Now, I don't want to get political, and I don't want to kick a hornet's nest here, but there are times when civil disobedience is in order. There are times. And in this instance, the lives of individuals who were created in the very image of God were being taken, and they said, we are not going to be obedient to what we've been told to do. So they don't kill the little baby boys. Pharaoh gets word of this. There's little baby boys everywhere. What's going on? He calls them in. He says, hey, what's the deal? I told you to kill these little baby boys, and there's, they're everywhere. What's going on? I love this. I love this. The midwives, Shifra and Pua, answered, Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. We can't slow them down. They just pump these babies out, but they, get, they call us and we come in and they're like, oh, look, there's a baby boy. You know, there's a couple in our church, uh, Joe and Whitney, uh, good friends, young couple. Their third son, Daniel, uh, just, uh, just a, a year or two ago uh, when they had him, Whitney said to Joe, Joe, it's time, the, the baby's coming. He says, okay, I'll, I'll get the case and we'll, we'll go to the hospital. And she said, no, no, Joe, the baby is coming. He says, yeah, yeah, we'll get in the car and we'll get to the hospital. And she said, no, the baby is coming now. And he said, like, like now, now? And she said, now, now. So he calls 911. 
and the baby came. Before the paramedics even got to the house, Joe delivered their third son, Daniel. It was like that. Shifra and Pua are saying, listen, Pharaoh, these, these uh, Hebrew women, they're like Whitney. We can't slow them down. I mean, they, when it's time to have the baby, bam, they have these babies, and there they are. Now, they have these babies. So Pharaoh says, okay, then I'll tell you what we're going to do. If we can't kill them when they're born, then let's kill them after they're born. And this is what he commands them to do. The Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you, uh, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Throw these baby boys into the Nile. Let them drown. Let the crocodiles eat them. Use them for, for, for crawdad bait, but just get rid of them and throw them into the Nile. And that's where we find out. Now, that's the end of the introduction. Now you ready to start the sermon? Okay. I told you it could be the longest sermon ever. It's not going to be. We're going to go faster. Okay. Now, you can turn to Exodus chapter 2 if you have your Bible. I told you we'd get there. So here are the people of God. They're oppressed. They're in slavery. Their kids are being killed. It's, it's a horrible situation. There's a man named Amram who's from the tribe of Levi. His wife, Jochebed, is from the tribe of Levi as well. They have a small young family. They have a daughter, um, Miriam, who most believe is probably between seven and eight years old. Some, it's a theory we don't have time to go into, some believe that she may have been Pua. I don't think that theory holds water. They also have a toddler son who's about two and a half at the time. His name is Aaron. And this is what we read in uh, Exodus chapter two, verse two. And she, this is Jochebed, became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. <laughs> okay, Moses, a fine child. Let, let's just talk about that. Because uh, I thought that, I, I read that and I think that's funny. Because what mother doesn't think their boy is a fine child? What mother ever has the nurse come and say, you've given birth to a bouncing baby boy. Look at him and she goes, yeah, he's average. All right. Or what mother would go, whoa, slap me, not him. I mean, really, can I trade him in? Every mother thinks their boy is a fine child. Every mother thinks that. Some of your translations may say she saw he was a beautiful boy. Some might say it saw that he was a special boy, that he was not common. Some of your translations might even say he was a goodly boy. And you think, well, of course, Moses is writing this. Why wouldn't he say that? I mean, he's the third of three children. It's just like my family. I've got an older sister, a middle brother, and then there's me. And it's like, of course, my parents kept trying until they got perfection. Then they stopped. Moses is writing this in with this little detail. Okay, hold on a second. It's a little minor detail, but when Stephen summarizes the story and leaves out tons of details found in Acts chapter 7, this is the detail he leaves in. When the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews summarizes the story even more and leaves out even more details, this is a detail that is left in. There's something about, and, and Jochebed sees it, there's something about this boy. And by faith, it says in Hebrews 11, they hid him for three months. Verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket. The papyrus thing, I don't know if I'll have time to go into that in this series, fascinating. Papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds among, uh, along the bank of the Nile. Basket. You know, we think this wicker basket and, you know, kind of uh, been, you know, waterproofed and, and such. The word basket here, because we, we see baskets throughout Scripture. When, when the, the spies are let down out of Rahab's window, they're let down in a basket. Paul is let down through a basket. After the feeding of the 5,000, they pick up 12 baskets full, all, of this, all these baskets. This one's different. 
This word basket is the Hebrew word taba, taba. The, the B has kind of that BV, like if you've ever taken Spanish, 20 is veinte, it's kind of a BV. Taba, say taba, taba. And there's only one other time in scripture where this word taba is used. And it's not about letting the spies down. It's not about letting Paul down. It's not about collecting uh, scraps after the feeding of 5,000. The only time that this is used is in Genesis 6 and 7 regarding Noah's ark. That the word ark is actually the word taba. The ark that saved Noah and his family and all of humanity is like this little basket, this little ark that Jochebed made to save Moses and to put him in the Nile. And not to just let him go down in some, some big, you know, rapids infested crocodile, in the reeds. Now, many of you know this story. She sets him strategically, very strategically, I believe. Miriam is over in the, in the high grass watching. Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe, probably comes there frequently to bathe, so this is all planned. She sees this basket. She sends her slave girl over to get it. She brings it back. And Pharaoh's daughter, it says this, she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. She doesn't take him and have him thrown into the Nile as her father has said that she should. She takes him in. Miriam comes out of the deep weeds and says, would you like for me to find an Egyptian nurse for you. And she says, yes, and tell her I will pay her to raise this son for me. What we see here is that Moses the deliverer, the deliverer had been delivered because it could have all fallen apart right here, but he's been delivered. And up to this point in the story of Moses' life, all of the heroes, or shall we call them, all of the sheroes have been women that God chooses to use women to bring about his purposes, his design plan. It started with Shifra and Pua. It also was with Jochebed. She's the one that saw. She had faith. She hit him. She built the little ark. Little Miriam hanging out there. In the, and even, even Pharaoh's daughter, this one who's not Hebrew, who's not a, a part of the, 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 the chosen people of the living God, that God uses her. That God uses these women to make this story happen. All right, verse 10 or, says this, when the child grew older, and we'll get into this next week, probably thinking he was three to four years old, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him, and here's where we get it, Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. We don't have time to go into all that. The word sounds like and means this whole thing of out of the water, you know, brought forth from the water. They call him Moses. Now, that's all we're going to be able to cover today. We're going to pick up with this uh, next week. But here's what I want you to know. Is that our goal this summer, as we study the, book of Mo the life of Moses, our goal is not that you say, oh yeah, these are the Old Testament stories I was raised on. I remember this kind of refresher course. No, no, no. We've spent a lot of time today looking back at all of the backdrop, all of the context, all the history. But as I close, I want us to look forward. Because this is what we want to do all summer long. Because the story of Moses, all of it points to Jesus. All of it points to Jesus. And I believe you are going to see ways this summer, that stuff you never saw before, stuff you're going, oh my goodness, now it's so clear. 
And it all just keeps pointing back to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. Think about this for just a minute. Years later, God's people would be oppressed under a wicked ruler named Caesar and a horrible king named Herod. And there would be a little baby boy that was born to just some common folks. But when he was taken to the temple, the old man Simeon and Anna said, there's something special about this boy. This is a fine boy. They don't use those words, but they say, he's unique, he's different. And Mary, his mother, saw that. And then there was a declaration that all the baby boys should be killed. See any similarities at all? And Joseph and his wife, Mary and Jesus, escape to Egypt. And years later, when the time was called and perfect, that God instructs his son to be a deliverer. And after he goes into the wilderness, we'll cover that next week with Midian. After he goes to the wilderness, he comes back to liberate his people. And after he comes out of the temptation, he goes to his hometown, he goes to the synagogue, and he reads these unbelievable words out of Luke chapter four, quoting Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, it's not just what Moses did. It's what Jesus did and what Jesus does and what he calls us to do. That Moses is the deliverer of Israel, the Hebrew people, out of Egypt, away from Pharaoh, splitting and crossing the Red Sea at great risk of his own life. Jesus comes, the ultimate deliverer, to liberate everybody, and not from Pharaoh, and not from, from, from Egypt, but from the enemy that loves to kill, steal, and destroy, and to take us into this life. And he crosses on the cross and splits open the veil in the temple, and not at risk to his life, but at the very cost of his life, so that we could have freedom and not just freedom from Pharaoh, freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, freedom from death, freedom from the grave. And Jesus says this, and John, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. And if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means we are all slaves to sin until we let Jesus be the liberator that sets us free, that calls us sons and daughters, that allows us to sit at his table in his promised land here and for eternity. If we serve anyone or anything else then our most high God we are in servitude, we are in slavery, we are in bondage, we are prisoners. And Jesus said, I've come to be your liberator.